EO part five, the conclusion. So we are in the middle of Elihu's speech. Remember that Elihu, uh, number one, speaks the truth. His words are not contradicted. They are followed by God himself, giving uh, Eov a nevuah. And what's also important is the machlokas between Rabbi Akiva. Remember this? Remember we spoke about the machlokas about who Bilam was? I mean, who, sorry, and who Elihu was? Back in uh, 32, in chapter 32, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva had a machlokas. Is he Bilam or is he Yitzchak? We spoke about that. The upshot of that is that what the machlokas is about, and that's very fundamental for understanding today, are the messages eventually gained through this story of Eov and God's revelation to Eov, are the messages for the world, and is Bilam therefore, as this prophet, responsible and doing his job as bringing these ideas to the world? In other words, are the conclusions we're going to hit, reach today obligatory for all the members of humanity? This is the way everyone must think. Or are the conclusions that, that we are going to see that are reached today are strictly a, uh, an expectation for the Jewish people because they are way beyond the normal mode that everybody else operates in. That's really the question here. So uh, Elihu continues his speech. We're in chapter 35. And what he does is he ends 34 with saying that what he's trying to accomplish here, if you look at the very end of 34, that he wants to be victorious. He wants to... He wants to win him. Avi Yebachin Yov Ad Netzach. This is the end of 34. He says, I wish that I will test him until I conquer him. Okay? What he's asking to do, what he wants to do, is he wants to persuade him with arguments. He does not want to say to Yov like the other friends, How dare you speak like this and think these things? He wants to persuade him, not shut him up but explain to him, convince him, shift his way of thinking. That's what Elihu is trying to do, and clearly that's the right thing for any teacher or leader to do, which is not to um, manage people by, uh, by uh, compulsion, but to lead people by persuasion. Right? That's how people grow. So he um, starts his third, his, uh, his third speech in, in Lamed Hay in 35, and the essence of his speech is, he is saying to you, if I had to sum up what you've been doing here, you have been reacting to your suffering in this kind of instinctual gut way, which is to you know, battle the circumstances that you're in and demand an understanding of them. And you're just completely consumed with your need to have everything explained to you. And you're just reacting. And you can't even think about anything beyond the suffering itself. You can't even begin to think, and this is where he's trying to lead him, about what might be the purpose of your suffering, being that it's not punishment. You, ha you are not making yourself able to go to the next step you are acting, he really says, and he'll continue in 36 in the next chapter. This is very, very childish. This is not okay for a human being to just keep reacting and screaming in agony over the pain and not finding a way to do something with it. You know, even in childbirth, they, um, they try to convince us that if just to like scream during the contractions is of no use. <laughs> that we're actually supposed to like breathe through them and make, you know, and use them to advance. I don't know what they're talking about, but anyway. <laughs> but the idea here is that, see, that's what he's saying to him. He's saying, you're just sitting here and you're not budging. You're just reacting in the same way over and over again. And you're just, every time you feel the pain, you kick back and you say, why, I, why am I going through this? And that's all that's happening. There's no progress being made here. And uh, he says to him, and you can look on the top of page 368, after going through an entire discussion of the superiority of human intelligence, he says, human beings 
with this God-granted superior intelligence, don't just necessarily have to react to pain, but they go past that. They cry to Hashem, and they call out for direction and for guidance. And they don't just kick back instinctually like an animal. And by the way, Eov, and we're going to see later in the Sefer, could very well be the personification of the 210 years of the slavery in Egypt. Because he lived 70 years before the suffering and then 140 years after the suffering for a total of 210, which is a very important number, which is the years we were in Mitzrayim. So, and it wasn't, and, uh, and if you remember back from Chomish, that it says, Vayizzaku, the people called out, Rashi and Mepharshim explains there, they were groaning and crying, min ha'avodah, just reactive to the pain itself. And they were incapable of looking past the pain to what could, this could be a part of, what process they were in. They couldn't see the process. Even Miriam, right, the Miriam Hanaviyah, was, who was not stuck in that mindset. She responded to her parents who said, we, you know, they're killing all the boys. There's no point to having children. The girls will marry Egyptians, so that's that. So let's just all divorce, stop having children, and self-annihilate. They just reacted to the reality in front of them in, in, you know, by hurting themselves even further. And she said, no, you're not, this is, just don't get stuck in the fact that right now there's a decree that the boys have to be killed. This is not the whole story. Go have children, you'll see how the story plays out. This is not the dark night that has no dawn. This is part of the night leading to the dawn. It's this paradigm shift. And, uh, and that's what he's saying to Eov here. That's exactly what Eov was doing, crying from the pain. And saying... This is, I can't deal with the pain, I feel abandoned, I feel rejected, tell me why I'm suffering. <coughs> and never looking for what he could do with his suffering. What Hashem gave him the suffering for, perhaps, which had nothing to do with punishment. So he goes in 36, chapter Lamed Vav, and he develops this point. And he says that uh, it's true that, um, if you look in Pasuk Gimel in Lamed Vav, Esa Dei Lemirachok, I shall lift my mind too far away. He's saying to Eo, get out of this little box you're in. Start looking beyond it. Maybe there's a message in your suffering. Maybe you are here to do something with your suffering. Maybe it's given to you as an opportunity. Okay, you have to go look beyond yourself. Don't get stuck on the moment and the you know, and the, uh, the, uh, the feelings you're having, and, um, and, you know, interpret it only in one way, go beyond that. And he starts in Lamed, in Lamed Vav, going into a description of a king, a powerful king. And the reason he's bringing him a description of a powerful king is because the king, as he gives a mushal, the king rules over all parts of the kingdom, <coughs> He's monitoring everything in the kingdom, everybody in the kingdom. If he sees a small rebellion starting somewhere, he immediately addresses it. If he sees a problem cropping up somewhere, he immediately deals with it. This is a mushal. A human being is a king over many of their faculties. Melech, the word, me, me, the word melech is spelled with a mem, lam, and chaf. This is a famous acronym. A melech is a person who dominates and creates a, a uh, proper um, alignment between and in this order, the moach, the mind, which is first, the lamid, the lev, which is beneath it, and the kaveh, the liver, which represents your, your life force, which is beneath that. A melech is a person who puts everything in order. First, the mind operates, and the mind makes decisions, and the mind figures things out. Then the heart responds and becomes, if the mind decides something is true and right, then the heart becomes a a uh, enthusiastic, you know, willing lover of that truth and that right. And then the body goes and physically implements the, uh, the results of what is right and what is true. So we sh- are meant to be aligned, for example. The Torah tells us that Yom Kippur is Yom, you know, is a day of kapara. Our intellectually, we know this, we learn it. Therefore, our hearts feel the, the, the Kedusha and the uniqueness of the day, and we want it to be a meaningful day. Okay? 
and where we appreciate the day, there's emotion attached to it, driven by the intellect, by the mind, what the mind knows. And then the body is very cooperative and it doesn't eat. The body doesn't throw itself down in the middle of the shoulder and have a temper tantrum because it's hungry. Because it's committed to the fasting, because the heart wants this day to be meaningful and the mind knows the benefits of this day. So we're all aligned. So this is called a melech. And he's saying to you, a melech is a person who puts, doesn't let one part of his kingdom rebel. You're letting your heart just have a life of its own. Emotionally saying, I can't take this, I need an explanation, I can't serve you, I can't make any sense of this, I can't do anything with this, I'm in agony, I don't deserve this. It's all passion and emotion, and you are not acting as a human being is designed to act, which is strong and as a ruler and a person who takes control. You have a mind here which can lead you, if you let it, to finding out what you can be doing with your suffering. And he says here that um, refusing to do this, refusing to get to the next stage, that's what makes you childish. That's what your mistake is right now. It's like a child that's scared to ride a bike and the parent says, I'm holding you, and I'm going to run alongside you, etc., etc., jump into deep water. And the kid just won't trust the parent and just refuses, no, no, jumps off the bike, no, lays on the floor, I'm not doing it. That's it, never, won't do it. Won't do it. And then that child never, unfortunately, learns how to ride a bike. Akadosh Baruch was saying is, all you needed to do, Il Ali was saying is, you needed to have emuna, and that would have opened a whole door for you, and it would have led you to figure out what you're supposed to be doing with your suffering. But you're just kicking and screaming and refusing to open the door and being very, very stubborn. And, um, and you're never going to get to the next stage. So he explains to him in Pasuk 15, He's strengthening a poor person by means of his impoverishment. This is all purposeful. He's strengthening you. Sometimes creating difficulties for human beings is a way that a Kodesh Baruch brings them to the next stage. But you have to be willing to trust Hashem a little bit that he knows what he's doing and walk, even though gingerly, to that next stage and see what it might be all about. Try it. Just try it. You don't even want to try it. See what you could get. There's all kinds of benefits if you would allow this to you. And he says, um, he says that um, what, what Akadosh Baruch is doing to you here, Pasuk 16. He says, what Hashem has done here is he's actually luring you away from that narrow opening that you could be falling through, which is a reference to Gehenna. And um, and that narrow opening, it looks very narrow right now, like it's just a small, you know, a small thing, like, you know, you just want to know your answer. But if you fall through that hole, it opens up to a wide, cavernous pit that you're not going to get out of. So he's just pulling you away from tipping over the edge, falling over that cliff. Until, and you don't even realize what a dangerous cliff it is. Because it doesn't look so dangerous at its surface. It just looks like a small thing, a small little opening in the rock, a, little, a small slit in the rock. You don't know what happens when you fall through it. He's saying to him, he's helping, he's guiding you, he's shepherding you. He is, um, it's a very long chapter, by the way, and I want to get to the end, so we're not going to spend all, all that much time on it. But he's saying to him, he's guiding you, just go with it. Eov had asked, has said to Akadosh Baruch earlier, you are treating me like an oyev, Play on the word Eo. Like I'm your enemy doing all this to me. And now Elihu is turning it back on him and saying, guess who's your worst enemy? You're your worst enemy. You're going through the suffering anyway. You know it's not because you're a sinner. So what's the benefit of just, you know, you know getting stuck in this mode, getting nowhere with it, refusing to consider anything else as an option and ultimately be holding yourself back in life. The ultimate sin is to hold oneself back in life, which we'll get to more in a moment. How is, what is the worst way we hold ourselves back? But you are holding yourself back. You're your worst enemy. 
In fact, how are you your worst enemy? What is your fatal flaw here? That you refuse to grow more than that you refuse to grow. You, Eov, and this will sound very, very familiar, and this is essentially the summation of what Elihu is saying, you have made yourself a victim. That's common. Everybody loves to be a victim because it then, it then releases us from... Yes, exactly. He says, you have a responsibility here. This suffering was given to you and for a tachlis, for a reason, and you are responsible to do something with it. And if this Elihu is Bilam, that means this is for the whole world to understand this, not just for us. Okay? This is for humanity. People are given troubles that is for a purpose. It is not so that they can sit back, say, I am being attacked, and use all their psychic energy to, um, to, uh, to uh, defend the, the fact that they're some type of victim. In fact, diverting all their energy to just uh, wallowing in victimhood. This is what Eov was doing. It's a natural reaction. Eov is everybody. This is what we do. And here's Elihu coming, and we're going into chapter 37 now, saying, you're not, this is unforgivable for yourself. God doesn't need to punish you. You will be the victim of your sense of victimization because you will be stagnating, left behind, not making the most of all the things you, you, know, you were given, not growing, not developing yourself. And everybody knows this is true. Who's the victim? Who's the real victim of someone who feels like they're victimized? They are. They are the victim. They hold themselves back. They don't grow. They have 50 million excuses why they're justified. In the meantime, they don't grow. And that's the tragedy. To be a human being invested with all our kokos and do nothing with it because we get stuck complaining about how things didn't work out the way we expected them to. So um, then Elio continues and he says, look, Obviously, I know how you got to this place. This is chapter 37. I know how you became, you, you let yourself fall into this trap, which God is trying to lure you away from, okay, showing you there's a purpose here to your suffering, which he, we haven't discussed it yet. But he says, um, you know, the comparison he makes is he says, yes, it's hard. The natural default mode could be that a person feels victimized and, and defends their position as the victim. But what's really happening here is you're really not a victim entirely, are you? Didn't you just have 70 blessed years of everything good that anybody could ever imagine? And now, for one year, you're suffering terribly? First of all, let me put a, let me put a, a, um, a challenge out there. How many people would opt to have 70 perfect years in wealth and health and respect, and happiness, and pleasure, and status, everything any human being could ever imagine, to have one year of suffering. You know what I think? I think a lot of people would choose it. So he said, first of all, you're not the victim. You're losing perspective. What about all the other times you had? What, what did, how do you see those years? And this is a very important, very important insight, which we're about to get to. Um, but he says, you know what, you, there's, there, we've all been in airplanes. Elihu describes this without ever having been in the airplane. He says, sometimes there's a cloudy day, so cloudy. And once in a while there's a break in the clouds and you see the sunshine. Right? But do you know that above the clouds it's bright, bright sun, crystal clear like we've all seen in airplanes? And the clouds are there to conceal the sun, and there are some breaks in the clouds. He said, sometimes in life, the, scout, the skies get very cloudy. You can't forget about the sun that's above the clouds, the sun, the sun that you lived in for 70 years in that sunshine. Once in a while, you see a peak of it, and sometimes it's really cloudy, and you don't see a peak of it. It doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean everything is, that there is no sun. You're just, he's saying, you're not, you're not... You're so trapped in your, you know, in your reactiveness that um, you're just losing perspective and you're harming yourself. And yes, Hashem hides his ways, which we, Aliho already established. He doesn't explain himself all the time. But the fact that suffering comes into a person's life, especially someone like you who has many blessings, also had many blessings, is not there to crush you. It's there to start helping you put things in perspective and do something with it. And don't, don't forget the things that you really know are true. 
And, um, and uh, he goes here in 37, chapter 37, and he speaks about, um, he speaks a lot about the sunshine and the cloudiness and the glimmers of sun that we see that should remind us that the clouds are there for a purpose. They're, you know, the earth needs rain, things have to happen, clouds have to occasionally cover the earth. And he says, um, my grandfather says here, throughout anyone's life, cloudy as it may be, one has countless occasions to see miraculous events, large and small. Suddenly a great blessing may come to us, or a great burden may be lifted from our shoulders. These are the times when Hashem opens the windows of the sky, so to speak, and allows us to see him as melech, of the otherwise cloudy olam, which comes from the word nelam, hidden, hidden. So, um, in his final words, uh, then Elihu, before Hashem starts speaking, <coughs> turns to the friends, and uh, he says to them, but you, <laughs> you, for what you've done, you would not see the light, the sun, even if the winds cleared every cloud away, and the light was shining brightly straight up in the sky, you still wouldn't see it. You are so far away from any sense of what's going on within HaKadosh Baruch Hu's governance of the world. You're blind to broad daylight. So, um, my grandfather says here on 394, in summary, he says, Elihu is telling you that this demand that God may clear to him why he should be suffering is unrealistic. Essentially, he shouldn't get stuck in it. And, uh, and these are, this is leads into HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaking to Eo and further developing these ideas. The essential idea that Elihu started is you are stuck in your ways and you can't see beyond. And now Hashem says, yes, you cannot see beyond. Let me give you a little glimpse of what's beyond your perspective. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu starts, this is in chapter 38, Lamed Ches, telling Eov that for all his suffering, he does deserve, he does deserve some type of direction, some type of um, explanation. And he essentially tells Eov now, and this goes through the next chapters, I am going to give you a virtual tour of my universe in a state of nevuah, which is a state of prophecy, where a person leaves behind constraints of their normal thinking, their normal you know, limitations of the human mind and what we are capable of thinking and knowing. And he takes him to a place beyond the rational where he gets to see the actual, the actual forces in play that a Baruch Hu is juggling and choreographing and managing and maneuvering to keep every aspect of creation in its place, in play, interacting with everything else, the gazillions of parts of, of existence both the Hashgacha uh, Pratis that operates on all levels and also the actual substantial, the substance, the substantial building blocks of, of, cre- of creation itself. First, he is going to go into a description of Hashgacha Pratis. He's going to give him all kinds of explanations, ex- examples of how in nature itself you see so many fascinating examples of Chachma and Hashkacha in operation. So he'll give him examples of how there are certain animals for just like this, that it looks like there is Hashkacha in their lives because these are animals that are very, let's say they give birth and they're very, very devoted to their young and they protect them and they watch them and they feed them until the young are big enough to fly off on their own or wander off on their own. And yet in contrast to that, there are animals he brings down some birds, that just lay eggs and abandon them completely. Like the raven. The raven just, the, the, the parent hatches the, I mean, lays the egg and abandons the animal completely. Who feeds it? It's screaming out for food, and how is it getting fed? And Hashem has a whole elaborate system where food, they get food. And then there's an ecosystem where one, there's a food chain and an ecosystem, and one dung of one animal fertilizes the ground to produce a certain seed that only grows in that location and only can be fertilized through that dung, which could only grow that tree under those circumstances. Even how forest fires are necessary and important because they release certain nutrients and they release certain seeds and they crack open and you know, start, a, start the system over. 
He showed him all kinds of examples of the hashgacha, how there are animals that, they're in nature itself. There seems to even be those animals that have hashgacha or, or those animals that don't have hashgacha. Think about it. Even, let's say, you know, some of us have dogs or pets. There are these magnificent, these beautiful dogs, you know, that can win a prize, that are just gorgeous in their, you know, you take a, um, I don't know what animals you have, but a golden retriever or a Labrador, these beautiful animals. And then you have like that dachshund, that little hot dog thing, or that bull, that bulldog with the, like, look at the difference between a giraffe and a rhinoceros. One is so bad looking and ugly, and you know, and, and then you have these magnificent, graceful animals. There's all kinds of, of animals and all kinds of, of creatures in nature that have all kinds of roles to play, so to speak, all kinds of realities, all kinds of, um, even animals have maza, the one that ends up never from the pound and the one that ends up in a loving family. There's just, and Hashem is showing him, I see this all. Everything falls into place, and he gives him many, many examples. In fact, he says that, um, how does the rooster, mi nasan, you know this phrase, in Pasuk Lamed Zayin, o mi nasan l'sechri bina, who, how is it that the rooster crows? When does the rooster crow? Before the dawn. It doesn't need a genius to see that it's daylight when it's daylight. So what's so special about the rooster? They crow and it's pitch black outside. But it's the precise second of the beginning of dawn before it's visible to the eye. Who gave the Sefi that type of intuition? There's so much Huffman. Then go watch National Geographic. And see how spiders spin their webs and etc. And how bees do a dance, which is really like Google Maps, basically telling the other bees exactly how to get to this flower. So, um, so he shows them all of this, and you know, in, in its uh, in in its grandeur. And he says, at Eov, if this is the case in the animal world, is it possible that I have overlooked you? Seriously, do you think I've overlooked you? Do you think this is random and I've abandoned you? I don't abandon that 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 ant, that ant in that ant colony somewhere, you know, in the dirt somewhere. I mean, do you think I've abandoned you? So that's message number one from Hashem. You are not abandoned. This has nothing to do with rejection. You should not get stuck on the fact that, you know, this means that you have no purpose, which is a good very, very convenient excuse for those people who feel victimized. And therefore, I have no role and I have no purpose. In other words, what they're trying to say is, don't expect anything from me. Okay? I'm not able to. So, uh, so that's the first thing Hashem establishes. You are very much in my mind's uh, in my eye. I very much see what's going on. I sent you these sufferings for a purpose. Eli, who previously had said, talked about thunderstorms and cataclysmic natural events, and he says they are purposeful which does not mean that people can say why they happened. That, you don't go, you know, there was a monsoon over there because that, those people are like that, and there was a, no. But the fact that these things are choreographed by God, yes. So, um, so this is, uh, that's the first thing. You are not overlooked. Then in chapter 39, he starts going into um, more of this, really. This is really 38 and 39, kind of, we did a summary. And then he continues to the next step. 38 and 39 are in the animal kingdom, how every animal has certain instincts and abilities to further its purposes on earth and for its self-preservation. Every little you know, genius instinct in every animal, this is all by the will of God himself. He says, don't you think I'm watching you and everything that you do and everything that happens to you, if I'm watching everything else, Okay, 40 starts getting very, very obscure. And here is where Akash gives him the, uh, the famous mashalim of this ferocious beast called the behemoth. Behemoth, there's even a beast today called that. And this ferocious sea creature sounds something like a fire-breathing dinosaur dragon thing from the seas called the Liviasa. If you read through the chapters, it describes the ferociousness of these beasts and has you, how you couldn't, uh, the, the behemoth is, you know, takes over the whole land, basically, and everything, it feeds off the whole entire land, and it's enormous, 
And that, my grandfather's going to say, represents the forces of nature themselves, the physical world, not, not Hashgach HaPratis in the animal kingdom, but Teva, physical nature, and how it's pervasive all over the world, and how it operates. And then the Leviathan is described as this, like we said, this dragon-like creature that you can't, it is so, it, this is, here, he describes him as, he describes him as a creature that is uh, covered in a skin that is so tight and strong that there is no way to pierce it and the skin is being reined in, the skin itself is kind of being held together by a strong set of double harnesses, whatever that means, we'll talk about it, an awesome power, this creature is so awesome, so powerful that Hashem with double reins holds in its power. It is a sleeping sea monster, it's described in Pasuk 6. And Hashem's, there's a few Pesukim here where Hashem warns you of who would dare wake it up. Who would dare release the power that's being held in under those tight scales. His body is locked on all sides because inside there, the fire and the heat and the ferociousness and the smoke and the steam and everything, if it would be released, the world would immediately be destroyed. His body has so much heat and fire locked into it that it leaves a trail of light behind him as he swims rapidly through the depths of the ocean. These, this Livyasan and this Behemoth are Mashalim, which means that Eov in a state of Nevoah was able to take a tour into the most foundational forces in play in the creation of the world. He is getting a glimpse at matter and how it holds itself together and how molecules are formed and how matter comes to exist, how my, my, everything about it, how it becomes strong, how it gets mass, how it, has, how it becomes physical. And beyond matter, what matter is created of is called the Livyasan, it's energy, nuclear energy. And this is describing the nucleus of atoms that are held together by these powerful bonds that who would dare wake up this monster and break those bonds and release that energy. That's what he's talking about. He's showing him that a Baruch has created a world where there is so much power held in check. Now, this is physical. The muscle we're going to get to. There is so much physical power under enormous constraints because it is too powerful to be released in this world, and yet it's the source of all existence in this world. So, for example, we know that in every atom, which is the building blocks of matter, there is a nucleus. And we know that inside the nucleus, there are what we call subatomic particles, right? There are protons and neutrons. And now we know that the nucleus of an atom is actually made of something called a quark. Many quarks. There are quarks. What are quarks? This is where it gets really unbelievable. Quarks are points of vibration. So, if you had a violin string and you were playing it and it was vibrating very, very quickly and you put that string on a grid with boxes... Okay, so where every little vibration hits a box, that would be like a point, a point of vibration. You could you could chart it. The quarks are vibrations that make up the energy inside the nucleus of an atom. Now, isn't that interesting? Vayomer Elokim Yehi Ar. Ar was created from Amira. What is talking? What is sound? Vibrations. Hashem's, now we get to the nimshal. Hashem brought this world into creation with amira, speaking. Speaking doesn't mean God has a physical apparatus like a mouth. When I speak to you, so an idea in my head gets transferred into your head. And what I'm thinking becomes discoverable by you. When we say that Hashem speaks, means that Hashem's will becomes discoverable in the world. That's what we mean when we say, Vayomer Hashem. Vayomer Elohim means 
God wills something, and if you investigate the world, you will discover that will like Abraham did. That's exactly how Abraham did it. He, just, he explored the world, investigated it like a scientist, exactly, and discovered a will at play. In the Torah, that will becomes our, our hashkina, the discoverable presence of Hashem in this world, which must be contained and concealed because to release it would be to destroy the universe. So give me an example of when moments in history where Hashem released that R, that Ratzon, and nobody survived the experience except like one person. Hmm? Matan Torah. Matan Torah, where Hashem opened, so to speak, the heavens, released that Ratzon. He expressed his will to humanity directly with this overpowering Nebu. And what did Chazal tell us? What happened to the Jewish people at that experience? They died. They couldn't sustain it. It was overwhelming because what happens is the person realizes, I actually don't exist as a separate autonomous individual. I'm actually a physical expression of God's will. Hashem willed me into existence. That's why I exist. And when I see that, I don't, I have no separate identity. I am an expression of Hashem's will. Now this is fundamental for Eel. He's saying the Leviathan, he gave him a glimpse, he probably t- showed him what scientists are discovering now. The Hicksbosum, which is really how, ma- how, how subatomic particles that have no mass gain mass. How, they, how does energy become this? This is just atoms, which is made out of energy. How does energy become this? How does it become, have mass? How does it have weight? How does it bond? What are the forces bonding it to other atoms and then to other molecules? And how do they suddenly become innocuous and unda- not dangerous? And how come every atom, which is which so this electrons, which we really don't even know exactly if they you know how, how they make a particle, but they're spinning, they're movement, they're spinning. How is all that motion in this static thing? So he's taking him into the inner world and showing him everything about how nature works, and essentially Eo is overwhelmed, as you can imagine. And he realizes that it's not just in nature, this nuclear energy, this Livyasan with these tight scales that are bonded together with so much force that if you, nobody would dare approach or try to break those bonds and wake up the Livyasan, causing the destruction of the entire world, this is exactly what we're afraid of right now. People are threatening to wake up the Livyasan. In fact, we've woken it up. Well, this is talking about, this is nuclear, this is, this is Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We, it has been done. We woke up this Livyasan and we saw what it did. And, um, and, uh, and now we're thinking, we're looking at a nuclear, we are looking at not just America dropping one bomb, we are confronting the potential nuclear holocaust of many nations all having these bombs and deciding to go to war with each other, right? This is actually, this is what uh, th- this is speaking of. So, um, the Vilna Gon explains that you take this, this, this Leviathan even further. It says, and the, we are taught, it says that in the end of days, Raman brings us down to Hilchus Tshuva, the Gemaras that explain what's going to be the reward for Tzadikim and La'asid level in the future. They will be sitting, which means not working, not accumulating mitzvahs, but at, at rest. And they will be eating a suda made out of the basar, the flesh of the Livyasun. Now what in the world does that mean? And you know that famous, strange... Rashi on the beginning when Hashem created in Bereshus the Taninim Hagadolim it says in the two great sea monsters which are the Livyasan and he killed there's a male and a female and he killed one and he salted it for the future and remember that whole thing what is this talking about what does it mean that Tzadikim are sitting and eating the flesh of the Livyasan if the Livyasan means is a physical example of it's a muscle for let's say nuclear energy and that's a muscle for Hashem's Ratzon that is within every single atom of the Bria 
there is God's rutzon at work. But God cannot, Hashem cannot reveal as he have wanted him to, all of his will and his wisdom and his governance to humanity and show them the entire thing. If we release the nuclear energy in just one inch of this little plastic stem of these glasses, we could destroy the planet. Kalva Homer releasing all the atomic energy in the whole world. That's what, what we're talking about here is Hashem says, I cannot release my or, Hashchina, my Ratzon, my governance of the world. I cannot release that for full revelation. The world will c- cease to exist, as we said before, not in a destructive way, because the physical material world in all its grandeur will be suddenly, will vaporize and it will be, not, not because of a nuclear explosion, because it will be known by all its, in all creatures, all human, human beings, that this is all just the zone of Hashem and there's no reality to it other than that. And so who am I and what is a physical thing and what is an object? Everything is just God's zone that it should be. It's also to speak a figment of Hashem's imagination. If you've seen The Matrix, the movie, this is what it's working with, this idea. When we speak, Sarah can tell me, how, does this, how is this related to our speech and the vibrations of our mouth? And Sarah could, was telling me today, my chavrusa in Io, by the way, Sarah Orbach, we learned together t- this morning, 5 o'clock, we were working, preparing. Um, thank you for your help. She was telling me that there was an article or some type of thing, a YouTube or something, that there was a Chinese... I think it was Japanese. Japanese. Something about talking to water and seeing its molecular changes. We, we know the koach of speech. That's a very big idea for us about the power of speech and what we say. So yes, it creates worlds and it destroys worlds, speech, 100%. But, um, but he, the muscle is Hashem cannot release his ratzon, as he would have liked him to do. Because then what will happen is we will suddenly have clarity that none of the constructs of our existence are real. HaKadosh Baruch Hu allows us to live in this virtual reality that we live in as individuals who are not God with physical objects so that we could be autonomous and make choices and be like Him, be creators of our reality. So um, Hashem tells him essentially that, um, this is what happened. You refuse to acknowledge that there was a purpose in your suffering. Why did you do that? Why did you end up in the victim mode? And, and uh, I'm kind of summarizing now the end of the book. Because you, um, you ended up in the victim mode because, as Eov had expressed a number of times during the book, you had a misunderstanding of the entire relationship between God and man. You said, I'm innocent, why would this happen to me? Which, as you go through the end of the Sefer, you see this thought. In other words, you gave me life, and I did all my mitzvahs in return for what you've given me. In other words, I've paid my debt. This is a contract. You give me life, you give me blessings, and I take them and do the mitzvahs with them. I, you have, you've given me and invested in me, I give back to you. This is a, a contract between two people, a taker and a giver, a, so to speak, seller and a buyer. I have fulfilled my obligations to you. You gave me life, I kept your Shabbos. Or let's say he wasn't Jewish, I did charity. You gave me wisdom, I gave people good advice. I paid you back for what you gave me. So I don't have a debt to you. So why are you angry? This idea, and this is where it comes in, is for the non-Jews versus the Jews, is our relationship to Hashem one in which we pay God back for what he's given us, in which case, if something doesn't seem equitable, we demand an explanation? That's certainly where Eov is coming from. Or is it a completely and totally alternative paradigm? And it's not the paradigm of course, of uh, of a contract between a giver and a taker. 
We are not meant to be give takers of God's chesed. Because if we are tzelem elokim, we are like God himself, then by definition, we cannot be takers, because God is not a taker. So, that whole relationship doesn't work. So what are we? What you has to learn, and what humanity has to learn, and what we definitely have to learn, we are not Hashem's chesed projects, because we would then be nothing like Hashem at all. We are Hashem's partners. And Hashem invests into all of his creations the necessary um, you know, qualities or ingredients or the necessary circumstances so that that person can be a partner with God, an agent with God, in their own way, bringing out God's truths through their particular circumstances of their life. This is a situation where Hashem needs us. Hashem depends on us. Hashem has concealed himself from this world and will only be known through us. So, when we say in the morning, you give me everything I need, the emphasis is on I. You have given me what I need. So, a very simple example. Everybody shows up to, for a cake-baking competition and everybody gets a bag of ingredients. Okay, my neighbor happens to have strawberries and cream, okay, and I have to have, like, molasses and whole wheat flour, but I'm just supposed to make the best cake from my ingredients. This is the point. Hashem is saying to Eo, you, I have a rut zone here, which I cannot show the world everything that I'm doing, no, because the whole objective of existence is I give you a... A, 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 I create you in a way that you live in, a, in your own virtual reality in which you, in your own way, create your reality for yourself and for your world. You take the, 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 everything I've given you, and on your own, this is the big deal, on your own, you say, what can I do with this? And the purpose of man's existence is to stand on their own two feet, look at their particular set of circumstances, okay? And say, what can I do with this? What's the best thing I can make out of this? And that way, Hashem will be expressed in gazillions of different forms and varieties of ways according to each person's individuality. That's how life is, is meant to be lived. What can I do with the circumstances Hashem has given to me? And it is not meant to be... To, it's wrong, and where he went off is to say... I don't like these circumstances and I don't deserve them. Because that's not, this is not at all the arrangement. Now, the nations of the world, let's go back to a very interesting medrash that we've all heard, that we take, oh, we, we accept it because we don't think into it. Which I didn't think into it until my grandfather pointed it out to me, and I'm like, good point. So, so here's, remember that famous story how the, before Matan Torah, Hashem went to all the nations and offered them the Torah? So let's go through that. He goes to Esav and he says, do you want the Torah? And of course, this doesn't actually happen the night before Matan Torah. What this means is that through the process of history, these nations, as they were developing, had the capacity to attach themselves to Avraham and buy in to what we bought into and be one of us, be us also. It didn't have to be just just a few people that followed Moshe and Mitzrayim. Avram had many children, Yaakov had, I mean, Yislech had children, everybody could have bought in. Esau could have been a partner to Yaakov. He was destined, meant to be. In any case, so it goes to Esau, what's in the Torah? And they say, what? Don't steal. I think it's don't steal for Esau. And they go, or maybe don't kill him, forgetting. And he says, uh, no, that doesn't work for us. Sorry. Okay, bye. Goes to Yishmael, what? Do you want the Torah? What's in it? Don't kill him. Nah, that doesn't work for us. I'm sorry, I might be mixing up who's done steal and who's done kill. But, so what, wait a second, so step back. So there's nations in the world, like the Ishmaelim, okay? They say, we don't want the Torah because we, because it says don't kill. So what do you think Hashem's response would be to that? Okay, that's fine. Surprise, you still can't kill. <laughs> like, what did they exactly accomplish? They're still, in all the things that they declined the Torah for, there are seven mitzvahs enough, which they are still responsible for. So what exactly was, what was this all about? No thank you on account of not killing. Okay, fine, I won't give you the Torah. Oh, by the way, you still can't kill. Like, think about it. What is the measure saying? And when Klal Yisrael accepted the Torah, what did they accept? 
So my grandfather explains here, and this is the core idea. The nations of the world, Eov, where he was not, and he could have been, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and we could be saying it to an Israel, look at you. In other words, what was, where did he go off? What's the flaw, the fatal flaw? Okay? The fatal flaw of the nations. Okay? Of course they're obligated to God. They accept that. That's not what they declined, obviously. But in, how does that relationship work? Fine, you give me life, you give me health, you give me wealth, so I will pay you back, and I will not kill, and I will not steal. Halavai. Okay? But let's just say that's a tit for tat. It's, it's, a, it's a contract. I'm obligated in certain basic way, you know, ways because you're the source of my life and you demand it and I therefore have to pay you with it. That's not what they declined. That's what they had. That's what they got. What the Jewish people accepted and what they declined is Kabbalah's HaTorah, which means I am not here as a taker paying you back for what you've given me. I am Mechabal Torah into my psyche so that it becomes the whole picture, the entire story becomes my rutzon, my will, my, my, the way I think, the way I feel, what I'm driven by. It consumes me. It's how I operate. I become, as our greatest enemy called us, the conscience of mankind. I know what mankind's supposed to do. It's in me. I'm absorbing all of it. That's what we got at Kabbalah Satora. And I'm not doing the mitzvahs as a way to pay you back. I am in partnership with you, an extension of you. If what flows through you, God, flows through me. Now this can help us understand something very distressing as we go through the, uh, the story. Eo gets a very, he gets everything back after this. He gets back his wealth and his children and everything, and then the, it's explained that the Satan just hid them for a while, whatever that means. He gets everything back. He even gets all his reward in this world, more than he ever had in the first 70 years. He has another 140 years of better than that. And he gets a very limited olam haba. He doesn't get eternal olam haba. Why? Because of what we just said. All a person has to do, and Klai Yisrael did this, and we have to do this, and inspire our children to do this. This is the prize. What a person has to do is, they have to see themselves as an extension, and a partner, and an agent of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So what flows through God flows through us. And therefore, whatever Hashem gives us, the circumstances of our life, we take them and bring out as much as we can about the truth of Hashem's presence and governance and love and do, we do, do what we can do with what we've been given. We become an extension, a representation, representative of Hashem. And if we are in the flow, then as Hashem is eternal, so we're eternal. And all our mitzvahs become eternal. And all our effort becomes eternal. And everything we've accomplished becomes eternal. But if we do not make that step and say we are an extension of you, we say we are receivers from you and we owe you a debt and we're going to pay it back, there's no flow. There's a giver and a taker and there's no connection and, no one, and the taker is not a representative of the giver. So they get what they get in life. They pay back their debt to a better or worse degree, and it's over. So Eo, because he couldn't get to that point where he had that paradigm shift, and he would say, okay, so I'm your agent, I'm your representative. Now I'm in a state of suffering. What can I do with it? And what could he have done with it? He could have done what Hashem was prodding him to do, which would have been the easiest thing to do, by the way, Instead of all the trouble he went through complaining, it would have been a lot easier for him to say, I have a moon and a Kaddish Baruch Hu that this is purposeful, and my job is to show that I trust Hashem no matter what He does. By the way, it's an easier place to go to, and it's more satisfying, and it's more fulfilling, and it builds you up, and it gives you a purpose, and it gives you direction. It's actually really psychologically a lot easier and healthier, because it's right. Right? So, um... But because he wouldn't go there, uh, he got stuck. Now, there's a, just I want to just dwell for a moment on some of the symbolism at the end of the whole story. Hashem turns to the friends. The friends were the ultimate, and that's why Elihu said, if the sky was shining with the brightest sun, you wouldn't even see that. 
Elihu told the friends, you are so blind to what's going on here because you have been insisting the entire time that it's a tit-for-tat relationship, that it's a contract. You sin, God is punishing you and taking away your life. You do, you know, do tshuva, God will give you back life. In other words, this is a contract, right? You don't fulfill your side of the contract, God takes away his side of the contract. That's what's happening here. You're, he's the giver, you're the taker, you haven't paid enough debt, you've, uh, you've, uh, you've, um, you've de- what's the word when you don't pay your debt? You've um, defaulted, and therefore he's taking away your health and he's taking away your children. That is their explanation. And Hashem tells them that they, he calls, he tells them they're wicked. Hashem said to Eliphaz, the main one of them, my anger is kindled at you and your two friends because you did not speak concerning me properly as did my servant Eel. So then he told them this, and here's the symbolism. Go take for yourself seven ox and seven rams. The seven animals here correspond to the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. In other words, the obligations of the nations. They have to sacrifice now. They are... In the, they have to ask to do tshuva, they have, to, they have to ask Eov to pray for them, and they have to show that they were wrong. How are they showing it? They're taking what represents the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, which means what represents the non-Jews' responsibility in the world. Okay? And they have to give them up as an ola, a fully burnt offering to God. Okay? And they, uh, these seven animals here, which are, um, and he goes on further, there's more. And, uh, and um, so first of all, on this, on this, on this point, he's, my grandfather goes on and shows some other sevens in play here. First of all, it is highly significant that Hashem's bris with the world after the flood is symbolized by a rainbow, which has seven colors. And remarkably, the word bris appears seven times in Bereshus, the section that describes the bris with the world, and we speak of shivim, 70 nations, this is about the nations. Hashem has a bris with the nations. And the nations, the friends of Eok, symbolized by the nations, got it wrong. And they need to do tshuva, because by teaching the message that this is a, this is a, a, a financial and economic, so to speak, relationship, you give me, I give you, this is a contract, they have totally misrepresented God, and they've allowed people to absorb the wrong message that, first of all, suffering is unjust and all of that, but more than that, they have that the goal of mankind is way beyond that. The goal of mankind is to blend in with the Ratzon and Hashem and become a part of it and advance it and let God speak through that person no matter what that person's circumstances is. God will speak through that person if the person allows themselves to be a mouthpiece for Hashem and not a mouthpiece for themselves. And that message, not to teach that message to the nations, is a sin that God condemns them for. It's not okay. Hashem does not want any of his creations, not Jews and not non-Jews, not one human being to imagine that he is created here to pay a debt back to God, and as long as he does a good job, he's finished. And he's okay. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's fulfilled his obligation. Humanity has to shift its entire paradigm of how it sees itself. And this is very appropriate to pull it full circle. If Moshe wrote this, okay, and Eoph's suffering was 210 years, and then he has three daughters, which are very symbolic, three daughters that he changes their names, which are very symbolic, and perhaps the three stages of Jewish history, three temples, perhaps even the three parts of the soul. There's many symbolisms in here. But what's happening here is Moshe's writing the Sefer, according to most. The Jewish people have just come out of Egypt. They've just endured the sufferings of Eov, and they've reacted like Eov, complaining, crying from the pain. And Moshe is trying to speak to them and inspire them and explain to them this is all part of a process. And soon they're going to come to Harsinai and they're going to accept upon themselves a whole different role, which is partner with Hashem. That's why Harsinai is considered a marriage. And they have to see themselves forever after as speaking on behalf of Hashem. And this is what Moshe is trying to get them from Eov's place 
of just saying, why is this happening to us and we can't take the pain? To the final position, which is, which Eov, by the way, after he sees everything, he says, I, I get it. I see it. I will never, I shouldn't have complained. I regret it. I close my mouth. It's, of course, this is, I wasn't seeing, I was blind. I was stuck. I couldn't see this big picture that you're showing me. And in fact, he even says, I have a total change of heart. And he says, in fact, now that I've seen all this and you've explained it all to me, I appreciate all my suffering. And it was worth it just to get to this point, which is exactly what Klaishel did on the yam. When Hashem O split the yam and showed him his right hand, so to speak, showed humanity his presence. And then, you know, Pineshul said in the Shira, Mi chamocha be'elim Hashem. Now, what does that mean? Who is like you among the other gods? Chazal say there, Rashi brings it, Mi chamocha be'ilmim Hashem. Who is like you among the deaf-mutes God? This explains. When the Jewish people were suffering in Mitzrayim, like Eov, Hashem seemed to be deaf and mute. He didn't save them at that time. He let them go through 80 years of Marira's bitterness. In fact, Miriam was born at the beginning of the last 80 years, which were the worst, and that's why her name is called Miriam. I'm going to end in one second. He was quiet. He didn't answer. They were crying out from the pain. They were like Eov. And then finally, Moshe came, and Moshe, remember, he couldn't speak. He couldn't convey well enough. He was afraid that this is part of a process. And they had to go through this. And many good things happened because of the suffering, actually, for Klal Yisrael. And, and they would, at the other end would be this capacity for the Jewish people to rise to a level where they make themselves, their makab el Torah, into their, into their psyches. We become agents of Hashem. And he inspires them to see this. And they see, who is like you among the deaf-mutes? They praise Hashem for the years where he was silent in their suffering because they see that it was necessary. And we'll just end with this idea. What did that suffering in Egypt do to us as a nation? So Nechama Leibowitz has a beautiful explanation. Everybody says, this is a famous idea, that the Mitzrayim was a core habarzal, which is often translated as a smelting pot made of barzal, of iron. And what do you put in it? You put in gold, and the dross runs off, and the pure gold runs off. So we were purified in a smelting pot. The problem with that is, you have to think a little deeper, we came out a lot worse than we went in. We went in the children of Yaakov. We came out almost over their Vodazara, practically over their Vodazara. We didn't even know, we had lost connection to the monotheistic ideas and basically like very Egyptian. We had a few ethnic, you know, sentimental things like our clothing and our names and our language, but that's not religion. And uh, so what does that mean we came out better? So Nehemiah says, perhaps it's not that the smelting pot is iron and it's used for gold. Perhaps it means it's a smelting pot, kor habarzal, for iron. Now when you put a hunk of iron into the smelting pot, what happens? It gets soft. And then what do you do with it? You make tools with it. Implements of all sorts, precisely designed implements for all, a, a scalpel for a surgeon, a knife for a shochet, a million different things are made out of iron and, and then other metals, right? In other words, it's how you form something, you forge something into a shape, and it will retain that shape forever. So now. How is it that the Jewish people have, as part of our psyche, as part of our, the shape, our, our psychological shape that we are concerned with the weak and the poor and the hungry and, the, uh, and the, those that are not so equipped to handle life? How is it that we're such a soft-hearted people and we always take the cause of the underdog? How is it that we always care for justice? Where, where, when did that get molded into our personality? In the Kor Habarzal, we were shaped into a nation with characteristics that can never be taken away from us. Even if a person has no Torah, they still have these characteristics. They're Jewish. It is what it is. Everyone going to Nepal was not uh, religious people. They're just, it's in the Jewish psyche. So, that's what suffering can do to a person. 
And they praised Hashem as Eov praised Hashem at the end for the suffering, when he finally understood that it's part of a process in which a person becomes a greater representative of God's ratzon in this world. But here's the main idea, and we end. Hashem didn't do it for Eov. He didn't say, okay, I'll explain it to you, and you'll know what to do with your suffering. He didn't. He made Eov. Eventually, in the end, he did. But what he, that message is, he doesn't come in and explain himself. He wants us to figure it out for ourselves. He wants us to know that it's transformative, and it's purposeful, and it's designed. Now, we must push ourselves to say, what must I do with this? And Hashem will not give us all the answers. He doesn't give you the answers. And he, then in the end, when he does give you the answers, unfortunately, because Eov didn't come up with the answers on his own, he's, he doesn't have that full olam haba. So the objective is to know this and say, Hashem is giving me a situation and I'm going to use all my imaginative faculties to figure out for myself what can I do with this. Hashem wants us to be like him, creators of our own world. He doesn't want to step in and do it for us. So Eov is very inspiring in that, the power of man, the responsibility of man, the role of man as partner with God. These are the themes of Sefer Eov. All right, it's